But there's so many good small and mid-cap opportunities right now, uh, including the regional banks. And I don't think the regional banks are completely right. But, you know, you take a look at all this and you just think, you know, this is just a transition. People are uncomfortable with transitions. It makes them scared. It makes them uncertain. It introduces emotion to their decision-making process. If you can work your way through that, then you're going to do pretty well. Hello again, and welcome back to Investing Experts Podcast. For those of you listening on your favorite podcast platform, you may not know that Seeking Alpha is behind these Investing Experts podcasts. And for those of you listening on Seeking Alpha, you know already probably that Seeking Alpha has a wealth of investing experts and insights to share and sectors to dive into, not to mention the stocks. So look for more Investing Experts episodes, look for more Investing Experts And as always, if you're interested in a stock discussed in this or other podcast, check out the stock on Seeking Alpha. Type the ticker in. You'll see all of our analysis on that stock. You'll see all of our news coverage on that stock. That said, today, I'm happy to bring you another one of our investing experts, a longtime Seeking Alpha contributor, a longtime contributor to the marketplace, to the stock, to investors' wallets and thought processes and investing strategies. And that is Kirk Spano, who runs Margin of Safety Investing, the investing group on Seeking Alpha. Just type in Margin of Safety Investing on Seeking Alpha, or just click on the Investing Groups tab that you can see on the homepage, and you'll see Margin of Safety Investing along with all the other investing groups we have there. Today, we get into the banking sector, a regional bank that Kirk likes that you may be surprised to learn. We talk about energy. We talk about the broader economy. We talk about what investors should be thinking thinking about in these times, how best to position their portfolios, and some other stocks that Kirk likes. Check out Margin of Safety Investing if you want to avail yourself to more actionable investing insights from Kirk. In the meantime, hope you enjoy this conversation. Kirk, welcome to the Investing Experts podcast. Longtime Seeking Alpha contributor, longtime fan of your work. Super happy for you to be with us on the podcast. How are you doing today? Doing well, doing well. Catch us up. Talk to investors, maybe paint investors a picture about where we are in this moment in time in the marketplace. I know you cover a lot of different sectors and kind of points in the marketplace, but do us a favor of joining all those points together or maybe synthesizing them for us a little bit. Okay. Well, Over the course of my career, I've covered energy, technology, and the financial sector. And for a very long time, I've told my investors, probably going back to 2018, at some point, the banks are going to have a problem again. Uh, COVID changed the timelines and the intensities. So what we're seeing today, I think, is a culmination of quantitative easing for a long time, uh, this massive disruption from COVID, the shift to work from home for a quarter of the economy, of the white collar economy. And now you have inflation, which is, as we know, roughly half caused by energy. And the offsets to that are slow moving. Monetary policy is trying to slow inflation down and really has uh, done a very good job. A year and a half ago, I wrote an article saying that inflation could last around two years. Uh, I was told by one commenter uh, uh, at the bottom of the article that he said something along the lines of, you know, if we had two years of inflation, that'd be horrible. 
I said, yeah, you know, I and I called it transitory because the long term secular picture is more deflationary than inflationary. Uh, however, people have been waiting to say inflation is here for 30 years. You know, we beat it in the 80s. It came down. We essentially had baseline inflation, what we were targeting for a very long time or below. And now we have the impact of COVID and QE and energy prices higher because OPEC and Russia are manipulating them on the supply side. China just came out of COVID zero. So now there's more demand and, and people get all breathy about what's going on. But I've been talking to you know members of our service for years about what's going on. And we've pretty much nailed it. You know, we called the the correction last year. I still think that large cap stocks have at least another 10% downside. And it's going to largely be tied to the banks, I think, because the Fed has to continue being vigilant about inflation because an energy shock could push it back up. Everything else is pretty much coming down. They've won the war on real estate already. Uh, we're seeing deflation there. Uh, services inflation is really the only thing that's left, but it's minor. And, and frankly, who wants to see their wages go down, right? That services inflation for employment is good inflation. So we shouldn't worry too much about that. We don't really want to cause uh, much unemployment. We just want a little bit more slack, uh, particularly across you know technology. I think that there's some interesting things coming with technology, the capture of profits from AI for the big tech corps, you know, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, you know, they're they're not going to lose in this 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 whole scenario. If their stock prices go down again, probably want to buy them. But I'm still avoiding the big banks, uh, although I see quite a bit of opportunity in the re regional banks. I think that the consolidation that's coming uh, with the Fed backstop is going to be pretty positive for them. So. I don't know if they're done going down quite yet in stock price. I think there's a little dilution coming. Uh, however, once they shore up these banks and we see the Fed pause sometime soon, you know, maybe they raise in May, maybe they don't, um, but they're going to be vigilant. You know, I wouldn't expect a uh, interest rate cut this year. I agree with BlackRock and a bunch of others on that. I think that interest rates probably don't come down until December at the earliest, but probably next year. And we'll see if there's an energy shock between now and the election, because that's, I think, the geopolitics of this gets short shift. I think that uh, that is really what they're concerned about, is an energy pop. And if they can avoid that, and I think that we're setting up for a huge bull market, and I say that as a guy who gets called perma bear all the time. For a little bit of context. Yeah, I want to get into the banking side of things and why you're excited about the regional banks. I want to get into the tech stocks also. I wanted to pick your brain, especially for those who aren't perhaps yet subscribers to Margin of Safety Investing, your investing group on Seeking Alpha. For those who aren't familiar with your thoughts about the connection between energy and inflation and how that pertains to everything we're talking about, can you expand on that a little bit and, and break it down a little bit more? Sure. So anybody who is older than me uh, has seen this a number of times in their life. But when the price of energy goes up, oil in particular, but it drags along natural gas, you'll see inflation in the economy. And that is not just in the energy 
component of the calculation. But if corporations and agriculture have to spend more on energy, then the pass-through prices for manufactured goods, for food, those all go up as well. So we know, looking at the statistics going way, way back, uh, you know, all the way back to uh, the 1950s especially, is that energy is the number one component of inflation, not only directly, but also indirectly. So if we have cheap energy, then inflation is generally pretty low. You know, you'll get your little pops here and there, barrel of oil goes up 10 bucks, whatever the, the case might be. But if the price of energy is stable, you're not going to have a lot of inflation in general, unless you, you know, you see massive monetary stimulus, uh, which we have seen. So that's definitely contributed. Uh, but I think that as long as we have a picture where energy is stable to decreasing, and I think that's coming in several years, uh, as more and more alternative energy comes online, you know, the growth rate on alternative energy is what, 17% a year. Uh, we have one in 11 new cars or EVs now. Uh, the transmission grid is being built out at a breakneck pace. I know people in that industry. So as long as energy doesn't shoot up in the short term, we've probably won the inflation war, uh, but there might be one more battle to go uh, between now and the election is probably what I would think. Because again, you know, Russia and OPEC holding back on supply and then Russia invading Ukraine, you know, that really created a, a problem on the supply side of the supply demand equation. And now with China coming back, not quite full force, but, you know, a lot of new demand from lifting COVID zero, you know, there's the potential for a, a jump there. So it's good that we've had stockpiles go up in the last month or two on gas and oil. Uh, those are easily manipulated back down if they choose to do that. I don't see a lot of handshakes between President Biden and the Saudis and the Russians and the Chinese at this point. So there is a cold economic war going on and we'll win. It'll just take time as supply chains move, as alternative energy comes online. And we're in a big transition right now. So in the short term, can there be another pop of energy inflation? For sure. Um, but in the long term, I don't think we have a lot to worry about. Does it play into what's happening in the banking sector or is that really limited to what's happening in the U.S. for the most part? So what I said to subscribers back in 2020 is I really I posed it as a question. I said, look, the hole in the economy was smaller than the fiscal and monetary stimulus that they added. Why would they do that? What 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 would make the Federal Reserve and the federal government put trillions and trillions of extra dollars into the economy when the banking collapse uh, and the real estate collapse and you know just everything that came from the shock to the system by stopping the economy was going on. And I think the answer was pretty easy is we know that there's a baby boomer retirement crisis coming sometime towards the end of this decade or early next decade when they're all on Medicare and Social Security. And we know that 70% of them don't have a lot of retirement savings. I think they pulled forward bailouts of the future. And I don't think it was stupid. I don't think it was unplanned. I think this idea that they don't know what they're doing is wrong. I think that they don't tell us the truth. 
with regularity, but I think that they pulled forward bailouts of the future. So when the inflation came, and it was largely stimulated by OPEC pulling back on oil production and Russia pulling back on oil production, you had to ask yourself, well, what do we do about it if if we're the Federal Reserve? And the answer was, we normalize interest rates. The idea that interest rates are high right now is very short-sighted. Interest rates are exactly normal right now, historically speaking. So all we've seen is what I've been calling a great normalization in interest rates. So the Fed has reloaded its bazooka. I wrote that article a year and a half ago that that's what they were going to do. They've done it. The bazooka is largely loaded now. Uh, Could they start stockpiling some ammunition next to them by raising rates another time or two? They could. I don't think that they will. I I really think that we're going to see the pause soon. If not in May, it'll be shortly thereafter. Because we know that once we get through the summer drive season, energy probably can't hurt us very much unless there's a real big shock. So I wouldn't expect anything horrible. We could have a bad moment, uh, I think would be something that you buy. But between now and then, you know, between now and the election, I should say, we'll we'll see what the little steps are. Uh, but again, coming out of whatever happens in the next few quarters. Boy, I I just, I, I cannot find a scenario and I look for them. You know, like I said, to the point where people call me a perma bear, but I can't see a scenario where the United States doesn't do very, very well once these new supply chains are completely set up and running, which is 2025, 2026. Because those are more beneficial to the U.S. in terms of location and where the money's coming in. Sure. I mean, you know, a robot here, a robot there, you know, costs the same. So when it comes to manufacturing, and I'm in Milwaukee, I work with a lot of manufacturers, you know, I set up 401k plans for them. The way that AI is being implemented, uh, the way that labor is being trained, uh, with all these supply chains moving here for manufacturing, particularly the car industry and the semiconductor industry, you know, you take a look at those two industries. And if you have a good automotive industry in your country, and you have a good semiconductor industry in your country, you're the king because the automotive industry with everything that's connected to it is huge. And then semiconductors run all the technology. So as Intel builds and Ford builds and GM builds and Taiwan Semiconductor builds and Texas Instruments and everybody else builds stuff here now, and everything is scheduled to start coming online by the end of next year and into 2025 and 2026. You just look at all this and you're like, wow, the United States is going to become a pretty significant exporter again to the extent that you know we're in a lower level of globalization because everybody's going to be able to build everything uh, with exceptions of the very high-end stuff, which is what we're getting into. All this high-end manufacturing that we're going to have available, you know, I've been to some of these places and it's just amazing what's coming. So I know that there's a persistent, you know, the empire's dying and dollar's going to crash and all these negative thoughts, but post-petrodollar age is going to be very, very good for America. Tom Lee sees it coming uh, as well and a number of other uh, you know, big time pundits. And we're all seeing this the same way is that once we get through this transition period, boy, things look really good. Now, for an investor, the question is, is how do you 
avoid losing money through the volatility? And how do you get positioned as the opportunities present themselves? And I have a very short approach to that as I tell people scale in slowly and at wide price points because there are stocks out there now that are down 70, 80% in the small and mid cap space, 90% even. And that doesn't mean they can't lose another 50%, right? So what's what's the uh, definition of a stock that goes down 90%? One that went down 80% and then lost half, you know? So <laughs> after that, so, you know, it's, it, 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 it's a process to get involved, but there's so many good small and mid cap opportunities right now uh, including the regional banks. And, and I don't think the regional banks are completely ripe, but you know, you take a look at all this and you just think, you know, this is just a transition. People are uncomfortable with transitions. It makes them scared. It makes them uncertain. It introduces emotion to their decision-making process. If you can work your way through that, which is a large part of what we do at Margin of Safety um, Investing, then you're going to do pretty well. It's half the battle. Um, so a lot of positivity from the alleged perma bear. Interesting. Um, so talk to us about what the banking industry looks like. I think people are clear about why they're scared. And I think people are pretty well versed at this point. Um, certain, certainly probably most of the people listening to this podcast are, are pretty well versed in the, uh, you know, the Silicon Valley bank implosion and the fallout thereafter and UBS buying up Credit Suisse and all that. How do you look at the bigger banks and and how does that differ from how you're looking at the regional banks? With the regional and large banks, they have a wall of real estate and commercial loans coming due uh, over the next two years. It's about a half a trillion dollars each year, uh, which is which is normal. You know, it's about a half a trillion dollars every year, a hundred hundred billion either direction. You know, after a while, billions turn into real money, I guess. And these loans are the loans from 2018 and 2019. I think that people don't realize that the real estate loans are reset every five years. So it, it's kind of like an arm mortgage. Most commercial loans reset every five years. So these are the loans from 2018 and 19 coming due this year and next year that were from higher prices on the real estate, as well as uh, higher occupancy rates. So you have commercial real estate running at uh, well, offices in particular, running at like 55% occupancy. That's way down from where they were. They were in the 60s before. They're not collecting as much in rent. And I know that already you're starting to see REITs and certain landlords giving the keys back on all sorts of class B office space. Uh, but now you're starting to see office towers in class A getting the keys handed back. Blackstone handed the keys back. Simon handed the keys back to a mall in my uh, neighborhood. You know, so you take a look at that, and that's going to impact the FFO uh, of the REITs. They got some problems coming. The banks are going to have to find a way to absorb this. Uh, the Fed has created a facility to help them through it already. That was part of SVV. SVB, uh, which I, I really think when those books come out, it'll be an interesting story. Uh, if you've been watching the incredibly exciting uh, congressional hearings on SVB at Signature Bank, um, you come you come away with three things. First off, the politicians are clearly in it for the politics. 
and the greed. And they're clearly either stupid or lying to us. And I guess that was four things. And I popped another one in there. But, uh, you know, you watch these politicians and the questions they ask, and it's so much stumping. And nobody wants to even ask the important question, which is if the Fed and FDIC knew that there was a problem at SVB months ago, right? Because they told them to raise capital. Fix your balance sheet, raise capital, fix it. They didn't step in. They didn't lend out of the Fed window and they let the bank go down. They didn't have to. It was a decision. So ask the question, why did they let SVB go down? Well, SVB controlled what over 80% of all the venture funding in the country. It's a monopoly. So you have to ask yourself a question. If you're a monopoly and you can't protect yourself, why should the Fed do it? I think that's a pretty fair question. I think the Fed and the FDIC let them go under, said, look, you had all this business, you were controlling 80% of the market, and you couldn't take care of your own business. Why should we bail out the executives and the shareholders and some of the bondholders? We're going to take care of the depositors because they're employers. And I think the FDIC is going to have to change some rules on that very soon, but we're going to let you go under. And they did the same thing with Signature, which had gone from being a conservative bank to being a bank involved in uh, riskier and riskier transactions in commercial, as well as crypto. You know, they had, what, 25% of the revenue from crypto last year or two years ago. And you know, the, the government isn't in love with that idea. So I think that these, the second and third biggest bank failures in history within a day of each other was not accidental. It wasn't a lack of regulation. It wasn't a lack of supervision. It was, you did this to yourself, screw you. And we'll, we'll take care of the other problems. We're not saving you. So now you've got Citizens Bank, which is majority owned by a billionaire family, taking over SVB. Um, I think you're going to see First Republic, you know, and this is a company I'm starting to invest in. Um, I think you're going to see First Republic taken over by someone with a very, very deep pockets. You know, that's a bank that is in the Midwest and in the Southeast. So in the Southeast, they're roaring. And in the Midwest, they're about to roar. Because if you don't think that the Rust Belt is getting back to shiny steel again and shiny iron and shiny semiconductors and shiny cars, you're not paying attention. You know, the Midwest has water, it has food, and it's building supply chains based on manufacturing expertise. So those are two great places to start a new national bank. I think that's going to happen. I think First Republic's going to get bought out by somebody with giant pockets. Somebody's going to buy 80 or 90% of that bank through a private share offering to raise capital pay back JP Morgan, Bank of America, and Citigroup for $30 billion that they borrowed. In my head, it makes a lot of sense for a little company in Omaha to get involved with that. Just a little one? We'll see. <laughs> uh, you know, they're actually kind of big. You know, Uncle, Uncle Warren's company. You know, there's a lot going on in, in the regional banking. All the banks, regional and, and large cap, are going to have to deal with this wall of uh, commercial real estate maturities in the next couple of years. Uh, the big banks are just going to be the big banks. They'll get borrow at the Fed window, right? They do that all the time. Uh, there's a trillion dollar slush fund to support the repo market and, and other things. So, you know, this is something I don't think people realize was created during COVID is that there's a, a trillion dollar slush fund, you know, so they don't have a shortage of money to, to draw on to make sure that the banking system is stable. But again, it's transition. 
people hate transition. The regional banks are going to do two things. You're going to see a lot of M&A activity so that we're going to end up with three, four, five, six more national banks. And we're going to see a lot of mergers or sequential mergers where five banks disappear and now there's one giant one. And we're also going to see a lot of the large, small banks get a little bit smaller uh, unless the FDIC comes out with like a $10 million limit for corporate deposits, which which is actually what I think they should do. And the quarter million limit go up to a half a million, which I think they should do. Then you just charge a higher insurance premium because that's how they you know, pay for that fund is they just charge an insurance premium to the banks for their deposits. So that's coming. Uh, I know that there's a lot of people in Congress questioning who's going to pay for these bailouts. Well, it's the FDIC fund that all those insurance premiums go into, and they have discretion on what the additional charges will be. They don't have to charge it pro rata across the board. The small banks didn't really have anything to do with this, so they can charge the additional premiums to the, to the uh, regional banks and to the national banks. They've already tipped their hat that that's what they're going to do. And that's going to spur a lot of M&A in the regional banks. But as I said to my subscribers, and I don't know if this is going to have to get edited, um, there might be one more kick in the junk coming. And we'll see how that plays out. But I tell you what, with a bank stock like First Republic, they need $30 billion. Well, the stock is already down 90%. So for somebody to, at least off the high, and I think the high was too high, but for somebody to put $30 billion to that bank and walk away with 80 or 90% ownership, there's not really a lot of dilution that has to go on anymore, right? Because the price is already so low. So if all of a sudden First Republic was very sound with its capital structure, I think that's good for the stock. You know, I don't think people go, oh, we have to cut it in half because they're diluting it. I think they go, oh, there's not a problem anymore. So if Warren Buffett or, you know, pick your pick your billionaire uh, brings his company in and says, hey, I'll buy 80 or 90 percent of this stock. And, and remember, at 80 percent ownership, you can account for that in your own company's earnings. Right. You can incorporate the bank earnings into your company's earnings. That's why 80 percent is a big threshold. Um, Berkshire Hathaway might move in that direction with, say, Occidental Petroleum. So once your company owns 80% of another company, Liberty does this all the time with their affiliates. Now it, it falls to your balance sheet. So that's something that you get in return for owning 80% of the stock. I can't imagine that is not what happens with First Republic. I don't think there's another way to do it, actually, uh, You know, unless you think the public's going to buy $30 billion worth of First Republic stock right now. And you know, unless you can make it a meme on Reddit, I don't think that's going to happen, right? It's, it's not GameStop or something, right? you know, it's not GameStop or, or AMC or, I mean, come on, something something great and bankrupt like those companies. And, you know, why would you bother with a bank that has FDIC and Fed backing? Do you, it sounds like First Republic is at the top of your regional bank list. Is that because of the regions that they're in for the most part? I mean, everything that you described is also compelling, but in terms of the core of what they are. Yeah, well, of the distressed banks, First Republic, for sure. And then of the banks that are not distressed and just got beat up a little bit, um, I really like Fifth Third. I tell you what, Fifth Third, a very well-run bank. That's another one that I think becomes a national um, 
similar regions. So I would think that uh, you see First Republic, whoever buys that, 80% of that, going to make that a national bank through acquisitions. I think first, uh, Fifth Third is going to do the same thing, right? They're all firsts and fifths and thirds and nationals. and But uh, bank shares versus bank corp and everything else. But, you know, this is a very overbanked country. You know, we have more banks per capita than I think anywhere else in the world, except some of those little countries that are just banking countries. Um, you know, when we have 1.4 banks per 100,000 people, it, it's it's something. It, it's like it's the most in the world of the big countries. Consolidation is not going to hurt competition because you'll still have your credit unions and your little banks uh, all over the country uh, taking care of you know, 90% of the population, uh, but then you have to have an infrastructure for banking that'll support corporate America and make sure everybody keeps their job. It, it's on its way. There, There's not a crisis developing unless somebody really screws up. You know, that's, that's what it would take. It would take a major mistake or series of mistakes uh, and some bad luck and some geopolitical prodding. The odds of all those things lining up are pretty slim, which means... It could happen. I don't think it's going to happen, but it could happen. Well, well said. Well said. Switching gears a little bit, although, you know, the connections are are pretty strong in terms of, uh, you know, how you're looking at investments. Talk to us a little bit about the tech stocks and where we're at there and, and what you like and what you don't like. So in the last couple of weeks, you've seen this big rally in Microsoft, Google, Apple. And I think it's justified from the standpoint of what they have coming. When a company finds a way to lower their costs, those costs don't entirely get passed on to the consumer. So the business captures a lot of the cost savings. In fact, it usually captures well over half. So if the price of a widget goes from $10 to $6 um, and there's $4 of savings, maybe the consumer saves a buck but then the company captures three of those dollars. Well, artificial intelligence is doing that, especially at some of these big tech companies, which are incredibly cash rich to begin with. I've never really understood why we beat up the big tech companies. I mean, if we're not gonna regulate them and we're not gonna really do anything to hamper them being an oligopoly, you know, why are people saying, well, you know, higher interest rates are bad for them, why? In the NASDAQ 100, the companies on that list account for something like 70 odd percent of all the cash in corporate America, all of it. So you have the Russell 1000, which includes SP 500, and then you whittle that down to the NASDAQ 100. And it's even, I think the top 30 companies have over half the cash in corporate America. If interest rates are going up and you're sitting on a big pile of cash, how does that hurt you? It, it doesn't make sense. So these big tech companies are going to do well. They'll beat the S&P 500 as a rule. And if you just own NASDAQ instead of the S&P 500, except during tech crashes, you've beaten the S&P 500 over every single rolling three-year period out there, every single one going back 20 years. So now that the uh, dot-com bust is no longer in the... 20-year look back, there isn't a three-year period where the NASDAQ hasn't beaten the S&P 500. 
between the tech companies, the biotech companies and the consumer companies, handful of fintech and communications, you know, why wouldn't you want to be in those incredibly cash rich, cash flow producing companies? You know, that's, that's the simple shortcut for people is just buy QQQ on the dips. And, and it's a wonderful strategy and it's worked and doesn't require a lot of trading. You know, I, I think that you were smart to trim it a year to a year and a half ago. I said so repeatedly. That's when all the people call me perma bears woke up. But I think that AI is a big deal. It's something that was talked about at CES 2020, the consumer electronics show that I went to right before COVID. And I've been talking about that with my subscribers a very long time is that the things that came out of the consumer electronics show in 2020, where the executives told you this probably takes about two years and this probably takes about 10 years, but investors get that backwards all the time. Things that they talked about are happening. One of the things they talked about was the energy transition. They said, look, in 2026, there is no way for internal combustion engine cars to exist, not profitably. So you're seeing all these companies ramp up so that in 2026 and 2027, they can start selling a majority of EVs. It's already one out of 11 new cars is an EV. By the end of this decade, and I'd say sooner, I think probably by 2027, half of the new cars will be EVs. And that means that we're on the slow grind to having the older cars, the internal combustion engine cars, gradually come off the fleet by what, middle to late 2030s? And we're going to be 80, 90% EVs by 2040. And I think the new sales will be 80% to 90% by 2030. Then you just have to wait for the ICE vehicles to get old. Demand for oil goes down. You know, we have all this new alternative energy. You start seeing an economy that just doesn't have a lot of roadblocks because we have everything else, right? We have rule of law. We have property rights. We have reasonable taxes. Um, you know, not everybody will tell you that, but compared to the European countries and some other countries, our, our taxes are very reasonable. You know, I've learned as I've made more money that as you get well into the hundred thousands in income, and especially more than that, and with investing, you know, it's not hard to have a tax rate in the 20% versus the 30% just by using the loopholes that are out there. So, you know, we're not an incredibly high tax country. And imagine if we maintain full employment for a very long time, because as the baby boomers retire, we're certainly not having enough babies to replace them. And we're, you know, xenophobic to the point where we're never going to allow 30 million immigrants into the country, which is probably from an economic standpoint, what we should do. We're going to export inflation probably, but things are going to be really good here. And the dollar is going to stay strong. It'll be in a new higher range. I first wrote about that on Market Watch in 2012, and it all happened. You know, a dollar compared to the basket is much higher today than it was a decade ago. And a decade ago, everybody was saying the dollar is going to collapse. Those same people, right? They pound down their phone on their tables and on their chests. They do that thing from the Wolf of Wall Street, right? We we have inflation. We have a dollar collapse. No, we don't. We have a transition. And just like Warren Buffett says, I've learned to never bet against the United States. I would just repeat that to people. You know, this is a transition. We're going to come out of it better. We always do. Here's the reasons why technology is one of them. 
AI is going to create more capture for not only our tech companies, but industrial companies that use technology well are going to do really, really well. It's interesting, you know, you were talking about the consolidation that's coming, that's already happening in the financial sector, in the banking sector. On the Cannabis Investing Podcast, we see all the time, all this consolidation in the cannabis sector. We can point to a number of different sectors that that's happening in. And hearing about, you know, all the tech that's happening in the automotive industry, it's like the sectors are also consolidating. It's hard to know what's tech, what's automotive at this point. We see Qualcomm, we see Tesla. And right. it's, uh, yeah, very much to what you're speaking of. Um, it's almost like there's no true tech. Everything is an amalgamation of, of different things at this point. Um, are there companies that you think are stronger than others to this point? Yeah, I think that there's, you know, companies that are beat up right now. And I think that the easy one to look at is Intel. You know, Intel spun off Mobileye, but only like 10% of the company. They'll spin off another 8 or 9% to stay above that 80% threshold. Uh, I think that that's going to do very well for them. You know, the combination of things that are going to eventually lead to autonomous driving um, are coming. It's going to take, you know, that was one of the things at CES 2020 where Back then, Elon Musk was talking about autonomous vehicles by like last year. And at CES, they were laughing at him. They're like, nah, this is 10 years away. And, and it's proving to be, you know, sometime in the 2030s is probably when we get it. And it's going to be the combination of AI, um, high speed, uh, low latency communication, right? 5G moving into 6G by then. And at that point, you know, you have uh, what is the what's the thing that Mobileye actually does? It's it's not the AI for automation, but it's basically the sensors. LiDAR. So, yeah, LiDAR, LiDAR. Um, you know, there's a lot of companies in LiDAR, but Mobileye is, you know, out of Israel, the probably the leader. And you take a look at, OK, you combine LiDAR with AI and, you know, the the, the CEO of Samsung called AI and 5G and IoT, the perfect marriage, because you're getting fast thinking computers that can communicate with each other through the IoT, and it's fast, right? Because the communications aren't showing latency. 5G has been a little slow to roll out, and it, I think it's because they already have the technology kind of on the drawing board for how they're going to make it so fast uh, in the future uh, when quantum computers are probably here in the 2030s or a facsimile of quantum computers here in the 2030s, um, you know, all, all these things will happen. That's when you get your Johnny cars. But in between now and then, again, it's it's a transition period from really interesting technology to, you know, stage three and stage four and stage five of all these technologies getting better. So I would just say, you know, Take a look at big tech, but I would also be taking, and this is something that I've been doing a lot of, take a look at the small caps that have just gotten decimated. There are so many single digit stocks out there that have revenues and balance sheets. That you just look at it and you go, why isn't this stock five or 10 times higher? I mean, literally 500 or a thousand percent higher. And it's just because Everybody hates SPACs, right? SPACs are evil. SPACs are bad. Every SPAC is going to hell. And, you know, it's just not the case. Nine out of 10 of them might, 
Um, but one out of 10 of those SPACs uh, are going to do well. And a lot of these companies that have spent a decade or 15 years building themselves, they're close to inflection points. Their balance sheets are showing it. Their revenues are showing it. The shift from not profitable to profitable is happening. You know, as long as we don't get the mother of all recessions, um, again, I just I just say people should be thinking about what is on their shopping list right now and small tech and big tech and regional banks are going to be a trade, uh, you know, a two or three year trade. You know, I don't think you, you own them forever. I wrote an article for my uh, subscribers in 2018 that was, why would you ever own a bank when you can own Microsoft or Apple? <laughs> you know, and I still pretty much feel that way. It's just that when banks get beat up, and I've, I've written this as well, when the banking sector just gets completely beat up because we're at the end of a cycle and going to start a new secular trend, that's when you buy them, right? It was smart to buy banks in 2009. It was dumb to buy banks in 2008, right? And then around 2018, you know, one of the things I told people is that volatility was going to come back. It did with a vengeance. And you wanted to sell your banks before that big volatility event in 2018. I don't think people have their head wrapped around COVID yet. I think we have a generation of books to be written on that. But the economic impact of COVID, whether it should have happened or shouldn't happen, whatever it happened, is so great that the timelines have all been shifted. And the shift to remote hybrid or hybrid work, I think it's going to be more hybrid than remote. Um, has changed a lot of dynamics. And, you know, one thing that I would point out, because they all do connect, is I work with a couple family offices and private equity firms, not, not KKR and Blackstone size, but, you know, families that are worth eight figures that they put together a multifamily office, and then they start buying the real estate in their town. Every city out there, you know who those families are, right? They, they're, they're, they have a brick at the museum, right? And so they have a they sponsor the charitable events. So these wealthy families in cities that are generally worth eight figures, uh, some nine, sometimes nine, I, I know a couple of people worth nine figures. They are sitting on cash right now and they're waiting for an opportunity to buy real estate that they like, that they can redevelop and, and then, you know, flip it in a few years for double or triple. And they're just sitting there waiting. And they know that the REITs are going to get beat up. And they, you know, the super wealthy don't invest in REITs. Um, they buy the real estate. And that's what's coming. So if Blackstone can give back the keys to a class A office tower, you better believe that a lot of these banks who get these buildings back are going to be trying to sell them off. And I know that in at least three cities that I look to invest in with people, um, there's class A office towers that are going to get the keys handed back in the next couple of years. And when those buildings are owned by the banks and the banks sell them off, the way those deals work is you, you go to your big investor comes in and he says, Hey, I'll buy the building from you. This is the price I need. And I'll get the redevelopment loan through you. And the bank says, Hey, great. We get business out of this. We get this dumb building off of our you know, off of our inventory because we don't want, want to own real estate. Uh, I've never quite understood the rules on that, but in, in my mind, banks should hold on to the real estate, but they never do. Uh, and I'm sure there's regulatory rules why they can't. So the buildings get bought 
And what's going to happen with a lot of the Class A office towers, if they're at 40 or 50% occupancy, you're going to see the top 20, 30, 40% of the floors get converted into residential. And that's going to bring people back into the downtowns. That's going to bring people back to where, you know, the action used to be, right? Because a lot of downtowns, I'm going to San Francisco in six weeks and I've been told it ain't what it used to be, right? And I think that'll change. I think people who buy real estate in San Francisco in the next year or two are going to make a fortune, right? Because it'll all get better again. So again, this is just a, a cyclical thing with a huge historical event that screwed screwed up a lot of things. And we're just going to come out of it, you know, starting sometime middle to later this decade. We'll have to fight off a boomer crisis. Um, that's probably the next time you see big QE. Uh, but between now and then, tell you what, it's, it's interesting times that we live in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it's interesting that you say, um, you know, the point about the uber wealthy not buying REITs, they're buying real estate. And I think you bringing up the notion of the SPACs, I think people's big complaint and why they think they're all going to hell is it seems like the play on the SPACs is before the SPACs get to the public. Um, and, and that's who's really able to make the real money on the SPACs. Is the trick just, as you said, really deeply digging into the financials to suss out who the real, um, the real good nuggets are out of the SPACs? Well, yeah, you know, a lot of the SPACs were just, you know, they were as businesses, they were jokes. You know, they were piles of money that the people who started the pile of money, you know, basically gave themselves a 20x share versus what they put in. And virtually every SPAC out there should have dropped by the known dilution day one, right? Some of them went up. But almost every SPAC should have dropped down to eight, seven, six dollars a share instantly on, on the business combination. And then once people got shocked by what was going on, you know, then just everybody sold everything. So there's a lot of SPACs out there that based on the cash on their balance sheet and the way their businesses are developing, right? Because a lot of the SPACs are just giving the money back. Um, but the ones who did a business combination, they're just a business now. Right, they're not a SPAC anymore. So you have to take a look at those and say, okay, it's a business now. Let's analyze this business like any other business. And the public, the retail public, isn't at that point yet. But if you've been paying attention to some of the big vulture uh, investors out there, they've been talking about it for six months at least, you know, if not a year, that they're out there looking for the companies that are. That are worth buying. You know, there's a basket of stocks out there, the satellite as a service stocks. Uh, I wrote about one uh, called Spire Global when it was down to seven bucks a share. And I said, you should start buying this one. You know, I didn't know it was going to go down to a buck, but, you know, we've scaled in slowly and very wide price points. We have a cost basis under $2 on Spire Global. And I'll tell you what, Based on the growth of that business and the money on their balance sheet, there's no way it's not a $10 stock in the next couple of years. You know, space as a service, satellites as a service is, is headed to being a trillion dollar industry probably by the end of the decade. And you have stocks out there where the revenues that they're projecting over the next couple of years are more than their market caps. You know, it's insanity. So hate is a wonderful thing to buy. 
You know, there's blood in the streets. Everybody's hateful. Buy it. And all you have to do is analyze it like any other company and get rid of the emotions and just say, okay, who's the sucker here? The one who is buying the $100 REIT that's going to lose 30% of its FFO or the person who's buying the, you know, pick an industry, right? The 3D company, the satellite company, the AI company, you know, the AI companies are run up already. But, you know, who's the sucker? The one who insists that their REIT that's going to lose 30% of their FFO will work through it. Or the investor who says, here's a single digit stock who's got cash on the balance sheet and they have monetizable assets uh, or they have a, a business that's growing at 30, 40, 50% a year. I don't know. I, I think one is the sucker and one's not. And I think that this is the same thing that plays out over and over again. You know, I had a, a, a great uncle, he turns 90 in a couple of weeks, who was a trader on the floor of the uh, Chicago Board of Trade. And I don't know if that's what it was called at the time. Uh, they've changed names in Chicago a couple of times. But uh, in the in the 1980s, that's what he was doing. And he said, you know, it was just so funny, the people who kept making the bad trades and the people who came, kept making the good trades. You know, and I don't trade my, I don't do short-term trades. You know, I own everything that I buy. You know, sometimes I make a, a catalyst trade over a quarter or two, you know, because I know that there's a report coming. But mainly I own my investments for years, for three, four or five years. I made a lot of money on exact sciences. I bought that one. It was a buck 65 a share. I famously or infamously argued with uh, who's that big short seller out in California or lemon something or whatever they're called. Citron. Uh, yeah, Citron. Citron I call him lemon. <laughs> I call him lemon. Uh, Citron, you know, I wrote that article about, you know, Citron is wrong about exact sciences. It went over a hundred, you know? So, you know, if you can buy some of these small companies, 1% positions. I'm not saying throw the bank at them, but you buy a basket of a dozen small companies at a 1% each, and you get to the 1% in two or three purchases over months, and a few of them go up 50-fold. It happens. I saw it. It, it, it did that for me for exact sciences. I, I have a list of 20 companies that I've had 10 baggers on over the last two and a half decades, and several of them came out of the dot-com uh, several of them came out of the financial crisis. Um, you know, for a hot minute, we had 10 baggers on some of the stuff we bought after COVID. And, you know, they have all lost 50% back, though. And, you know, unlike Kathy Woods, I sold a bunch of them. Uh, so you take a look at how to invest. And it really is the things that Warren Buffett talks about for ever, right? He's been writing these letters saying, look, when everybody hates something, just evaluate the business. And if it's a good business, buy it. And when everybody is throwing speculative money around, you should be selling to them. Let them let them buy the hopes and dreams. And you, Sam Zell said on an interview sometime last year, you know, I'm cursed by knowing the numbers. And that's what you need to try to, to do is understand the numbers. And right now, the numbers say that we have a generational opportunity to buy small and mid caps. There's a short-term opportunity to me, short-term is a few years, short-term opportunity to buy regional banks. Um, I still wouldn't buy the big banks. I just don't see there's any upside. If you want dividends, there's all sorts of industries, uh, you know, industrial companies that are going to capture 
a lot more revenue, right? A lot more to the bottom line as their cost of production goes down because of the AI. You know, there, there's big trends out there that people should be paying attention to and stop fighting things for, you know, from your biases that you've accumulated over a lifetime or recency bias if you're young. You know, one of the things about the young traders, I wrote this article on Seeking Alpha as well, as I said, look, will the millennials and Gen Z traders flip the switch to the downside, right? They are buying calls and buying calls and buying calls to pump everything up. And they're starting to learn how to buy puts and they're learning how to short stuff. And they find vulnerabilities for low in low float companies, low float small caps in particular. And they they gang up, they use Reddit and they use Twitter and their little uh, Discord rooms. They say, let's all short this company because nobody's buying it right now. And we'll beat the heck out of this 70, 80%, and then we'll run away. They're already doing it. And if there is a fearful moment this year or next year, um, I think. You know, there's twice as many traders now as there was five years ago. That's all speculative money. It's all people who believe, well, I can out-trade everybody, right? I'm really good at this. I have a system. I'm a chartist, you know, and they come up with all this, you know, stuff. You know, I play professional poker and I'm telling you, all these people with trading systems, it reminds me of people who know exactly which slot machine to play, right? It, it is, it is the funniest thing I've ever seen. It is cyclical. It happens every generation and it's happening right now. Uh, I do think the millennials and the Gen Zers are better traders than their older counterparts. Um, however, I think they have, you know, at least a big chunk of them have some comeuppance coming. You know, they've already seen it in crypto. They all got wiped out on their, you know, am I allowed to say shit coins? <laughs> I'm not. Okay. You know, they all got beat up on their shit coins, but I'll tell you what, I'm bullish on Bitcoin. I've been telling people every time Bitcoin's under 20 grand to buy it. I did an interview about, you know, a little over a year ago when Bitcoin was 45, 50 grand. And I said, look, it's going to go to 30 for sure. And it might go under 20. And I explained why. And it did. So when it got down to 30, I said, start paying attention. When it got under 20, I said, start buying it. I wrote the article on Seeking Alpha about who should buy Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. If you had bought Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, when I wrote that article in November, December, whatever it was, you're up 40 or 50% in a couple of months. And you know, with Bitcoin, and I just throw that out there because it is going to have an impact on the global uh, banking system. Got to remember, not everybody's in America. And there are people out there and there are countries out there, there are governments out there that don't like America. They don't like the West. Right. I'm looking at you, little Vladdy. And I'm looking at you, GGG. You know, you take a look at these folks and you say, okay, they're buying Bitcoin. Why are they doing it? The emerging markets are buying Bitcoin. Why are they doing it? The very wealthy are buying Bitcoin. Why are they doing it? Well, there's some pretty easy answers is for the countries, they're buying Bitcoin because they need a hedge against the dollar and they don't want it to be the euro because the euro is going to move choppy and sideways forever. You know, Europe is going to be the definition of mediocrity when it comes to economics and finance 50 years from now. It's already started. You know, when I said that the dollar a decade ago was going to be on par with the euro, I got laughed at. You're out of your mind. Oh, well, here we are. They're at par. And you know, they'll chop around that line, you know, above and below a little bit. But Bitcoin is a hedge against periods when the dollar gets very strong. And the dollar, once the 
cheap energy age comes back and it's coming, you know, the dollar is just going to stay strong and, and get stronger. And there's going to be periods when the dollar gets too strong and it starts to break things. So, you know, which we just saw with the banks, Bitcoin's going to be a six figure price tag in the not too distant future. And the super wealthy buy it and the family offices are starting to buy it. If you read institutional investor or you talk to the people I talk to, they're buying Bitcoin because it's a kind of, it's almost like an international passport, right? I mean, if you get in trouble or if you just want to play a shell game, owning some Bitcoin is, is, is important. Now, the banking system is capturing Bitcoin though. So you're going to see all these crypto transactions regulated. You got Gensler at the SEC pushing the issue. issue. I don't think he's necessarily anti-crypto or Bitcoin. He just wants freaking rules. And if he can't get Congress to do it, he's going to push it through the courts. He's going to he's going to stimulate a decision. You know, he just went after, or the CTFC just went after uh, Binance and CZ out of China. That's part of the whole geopolitical thing with currencies and everything else of the economic cold war. That's you know, that we're flirting with, and maybe it's already happening. It's hard to tell. If you read Foreign Affairs, some say it's coming, some say it's already happening, whatever. It's not as good as it was years ago uh, with globalization. Back in the napkin, I can't come up with a price of Bitcoin that's less than 300000 Can't come up with it. I keep trying. But just on the adoption, right? If people are deciding that it's a currency, but it's not a central bank currency, it's a hedge against the central bank currencies. Doesn't mean that we're ever going to buy our pizza with Bitcoin, but it's going to have a role in international finance. And there's just no way it doesn't go up to 300,000 from here. And I'm going to put out a paper on that. Kathy Wood's uh, stuff, you should read about Bitcoin. Um, I think on a FOMO rally, it can go over a million. But the Bitcoin maximalists on Twitter and Reddit and Wherever else they, I'll say populate, I have different words for it. I mean, to me, they're kind of like a virus, but, you know, the maximalists are just full of crap. You know, you're not going to see Bitcoin, you know, replace the dollar. It is a hedge against the dollar, and it's a way of having a single digit percentage of your money somewhere where the central bank can't blow you up. That That's what it is. And is it the only one that you like? Yeah. So of the cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin is the only one that's going to function in that way. It's a commodity. Ethereum, Ripple, uh, Chainlink, there are project-based cryptocurrencies. And I know that most people don't understand the difference between Bitcoin and all the other ones. Um, so like Dogecoin was like Bitcoin, but it's not, right? So all the competitors of Bitcoin are going away. You need one and Bitcoin has won that battle. Bitcoin is the one that's going to be the commodity. It's it's digital gold. That's what it is. Ethereum, Ripple, Chainlink. I mentioned those three because they've all been getting adopted by the banking industry. You know, the um, IMF and World Bank uh, have Chainlink and Ethereum-based uh, things being built. Uh, Ripple just got into bed with Bank of America. Uh, so you look through and you find a half a dozen, maybe a dozen um, project-based cryptocurrencies that are really validation methods for something else that's going on, transactions, whatever the case might be, um, or technology development. Those will survive. There's not a lot 
them. You know, it's it's a double digit number. I don't know what what I don't know if it's a dozen or three dozen. I, I I don't have a grip on every project that's out there, but there's not many. And Bitcoin is going to win the currency currency commodity war. Uh, Dogecoin is going to disappear. Everything else is going to disappear. Um, and we're seeing that. So one of the thesis that we've had is that 99% of the cryptos are going to zero. But that 1% that survives, they're going to be important because you got the basket that have to do with developing something or transacting something. And then you have Bitcoin, which is digital gold. And that is, you know, why people should be buying Bitcoin uh, somehow. You know, if you are, I'd say under the, if you're not retired yet, you should buy some Bitcoin. And it doesn't have to be much. I've been telling my folks, take a single digit percentage of your bank savings, put it at Coinbase and buy some Bitcoin. Oh, I'm afraid of Coinbase. Look, Coinbase is in bed with BlackRock and the CTFC, and they're going to make peace with the SEC at some point, and they're just going to have to come up with the rules. So I'm not saying buy Coinbase stock, but if I was going to put Bitcoin somewhere, that's what I use. I use I use Coinbase, and then I put it in cold storage, you know, so that you know if I have to switch, I can switch. So it's important to know that stuff. If you want to buy the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust because you have the risk tolerance for it, read the article. Um, that's that's an alternative because of the discount on Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. And if you just want to have something that has exposure to Bitcoin and you don't want to manage the basket and you just want to ETF, the um, ARC um, uh, Next Gen Internet or Internet is ARKW is the symbol um, that owns some Square, it owns some Coinbase, it owns some Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, you know, and then it also owns like Shopify, which is down ninety percent, and they're a big deal. So you know, there's there's a fund you can buy if you just want exposure and you want to limit your exposure, but you want a little bit, which is what I think most people should be doing. You know, I don't think you should throw the bank at it, but you should have some exposure. It's just like when I was a broker, you always had some older broker tell you, make sure you put 5% in gold. Uh, like, why? <laughs> you know, you know, I bought a whole bunch of gold in 2000 because a client talked me into it and I bought it for everybody. And, you know, we were buying gold for in the 300s and 400s an ounce. That worked out. Um, we have traded in and out of the gold mining stocks, which right now I hate. Um, but I, you know, if gold falls to 1500, and I said that in my last investment webinar uh, for clients, if gold falls to 15, 1400, 1300, I mean, I'll be all over it. Uh, but I don't really buy the gold securities. You know, I'm, I'm looking at buying uh, heirloom jewelry. Uh, I buy the gold coins. I buy the little mini bars. And it's not because they're really great investments, it's just a little hedge and it's pretty. And it has some antique value and it has some novelty value, right? So, you know, gold is not a great investment. It's just something that physically I would like to own. Um, but you don't have to. If you don't think gold is pretty, don't buy it. Um, it's not going to make a big difference in your portfolio. Now, if you trade GLD, you know, and you're a great trader, and remember, four out of five people are not. Um, you know, IRS records show that, that 
80% of people write off on their, on their uh, taxes every year of uh, trading losses, uh, give or take. And sometimes it's 75, sometimes 85, but it's four out of five people who try to trade are bad at it. And it's because they're competing with people like me who are good at it and still know not to do it. Think that through. I'm good at trading and I don't do it because it is not as safe and it is not as easy as just saying, hey, look, a dollar bill and they'll sell it to me for 50 cents. Because that still happens, especially in the small caps uh, and in real estate. So, you know, I'm not saying anything that's original here. I'm just standing on the shoulders of giants and I have been willing, and that's what it comes down to, I think, I've been willing to adopt their methods. And I've learned the numbers and I'm really good at analyzing businesses because I love doing it. You know, I go to a lot of the businesses and I talk to the executives and I learn the industries and I read the trade mags. You know, Jimmy Rogers in like 1990, uh, before he was even super famous, he was just kind of famous, uh, you know, because of his days with uh, Soros and uh, whatever that fund was that they had. Um, you know, here's a guy who grew up uh, kind of like Jimmy Carter in peanut country in Alabama. And, you know, at 37, he was a retired billionaire. Did something right. Well, he said his most important lesson was, uh, he had been on a train or an airplane or something, and somebody said, or he asked the guy next to him, what's the most important thing about investing? And the guy said, just read everything, because nobody does it. If you read the trade journals and you read the corporate reports, you are ahead of 90% of the people out there. So that's what I've done. I just read a lot. And to the extent that I can publish uh, my notes, I do. And... You know, that's what you learn over time is you learn how businesses work. You learn how real estate works. Everybody learns by mistakes. I've made plenty. Um, and you learn when to buy when there's truly blood in the streets. REITs dropping 30% in the next year, which I think is very possible, um, is not really a blood in the streets sort of thing. That's just going to be what fair value is. Now, if they drop 50 or 60%, you know, you got my attention because now there's a margin of safety built in. Well, I think anybody who is hearing you for the first time is checking out margin of safety investing on Seeking Alpha and, and wondering what else they can uh, call from from your compelling analysis, I would say. And to your point about you're not doing anything special. I think in a world of unsound advice, sound advice is really special. Um, and competent uh, analysis is, I think, rarer and rarer. And um, yeah, this has just been such a great conversation, super actionable and super compelling and really interesting. I think pulling all the different points together. Um, and for those that want to keep going on and on in this conversation, fear not. Uh, Kirk will be a regular voice in, in, in this platform. Um, and just thank you so much. And if there's anything else you'd like to share or uh, say to investors before before we end this part of the conversation. Yeah, you know, I'll just do the uh, I'll just do the elevator pitch here. Look, if you want to try margin of safety investing, you know, you get a month to check it out, free trial. Maybe it's two weeks. I don't know, but it's free. There's a twenty percent discount uh, for your first year running right now. I am raising the price at the end of the year uh, for new subscribers after January, uh, just because. 
I'm probably charging half what I should be charging um, compared to similar services. And I have a couple of special reports coming out. I put out about four special reports a year. I'm going to be talking about the future of energy. Uh, we are halfway through our Bitcoin report, which you know a lot of you don't care about, but some of you do. Uh, but the future of energy is a big deal. And one of the articles that I have sitting in my queue uh, that I haven't finished, but I, I actually outlined it over a year ago, the title of the article is how I'm going to take climate change deniers money. And I'm not being political there. I'm just telling you a lesson I got from my grandfather was if you want to know how things are working and why things are, are working and where the money is and what's the future holds, follow the big money. Well, folks, the big money, billions and trillions of dollars are flowing into this energy transition. And you have opportunities in solar, you have opportunities in batteries, you have opportunities in grid management, you have opportunities in hydrogen. Over the next 10 years, you're going to see the biggest, I'd say, functional change to the way that you do something because everybody's going to be buying EVs. Everybody's going to have solar or access to alternative energy somehow. You know, it's harder in the city to put up solar, but you're going to have access. And, and it's going to be pretty amazing. And that, in turn, is going to free up a lot of money to be made in industry. So, you know, that's what we're talking about. We talk about the big secular trends, and then we try to figure out how we can make money on it. Just a reminder, anything you hear on this podcast should not be considered investment advice. This is for entertainment purposes only, and you should seek advice from a licensed professional before investing. If you enjoyed the episode, leave a rating or review on your favorite podcasting app, and we'll see you soon with a new episode.